great to see you this morning. Great to have you here on campus, or if you're watching, great to have you here online. And uh, I want to invite everybody to get your Bible out and open it up. If you brought one, bring it out. If you got your phone, got it on your phone, open it up uh, to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5 is where we're going to be uh, landing uh, this morning. I remember several years ago uh, going to Bangalore, India for the first time. And we were doing ministry there and sharing the gospel there. But I remember walking through a residential area and there were, I, I noticed that there were these chalk drawings on the porches of the houses and they were very elaborate. They were very beautiful, very elaborate chalk drawings. And I remember also noticing that sometimes on the corner of houses, there would be these little images like sometimes of an animal or a person. And so I asked the people that were with me, I said, what, what is this? What are the chalk drawings? Obviously they, they draw them every day. So it was fresh every day. And they said, oh yes, this is very important. These drawings on the porches and these images on the corners are to ward off evil spirits. They said they believe, the people believe that evil spirits will come and harass them if they do not have these type of drawings and icons around them. And so they live in constant fear of evil spirits. As we went on with the trip, I remember stopping by and we, we stopped in front of a Hindu temple. And you could look inside, not without going in, but just looking inside, you could see them offering uh, some small animal type sacrifices and, and burning incense and things like that. And of course they said, you want to come in? We we're like, no, we don't want to go in. We don't want to go anywhere close to that. And you could just feel this kind of foreboding sense of evil. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Maybe you've experienced that traveling overseas. Maybe you've experienced that uh, here in the United States. Certainly, evil is around us. Would you agree with that? I don't think anyone is going to argue with the fact that we see evil all the time. We see it displayed on TV. We see it uh, played out in the news. We see it online. We see it all over the place. So how do we deal with evil, a present evil? And how do we stand against that? How do we protect our families? What do, how do we get free? If maybe we have felt like uh, there have been habits that have taken hold of our life or experiences we've had that seem to draw us toward things that are evil and dark. How do we free ourselves from that? That's what I want to talk about today, all right? And that's why we're in Mark chapter 5 because what we're going to see is a man who was overcome by evil in its most pervasive sense. And yet, while being in bondage in evil, he was changed by Jesus Christ and found ultimate freedom. Ultimate freedom. In fact, that's what this series is about, changed. We've been looking at people that have been changed. Last week, we saw someone from blindness to sight. This week, we're looking at a man who went from bondage uh, to freedom. And that's in Mark uh, chapter 5. Uh, so before we jump into the story, let me just kind of set this up because the setup is really important. If you look over in Mark chapter 4, Jesus is teaching in the Galilee. He's teaching about, he's teaching using parables. He's ministering there. And in Mark chapter 4 verse 35, I would go back and circle that verse. It says this, on that day when evening had come, 
he told them, let us cross over to the other side of the sea. Now, when he talks about the sea, he's talking about the Sea of Galilee. Literally, it's a large lake, okay? And so they've been ministering on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, which was a prominent Jewish side. All the Jewish settlements were there. And he said, the evening had come, let's cross over to the other side, which was the Gentile side. The area of the Decapolis, the 10 cities, the, the Gentile uh, settlements there, which uh, oftentimes uh, many of the ruins are still there for us to see today. He said, let's cross over. Now notice it said when evening had come. So this whole episode is happening in the evening. They get in the boat, they start to move to the other side. A massive storm envelops them. They're afraid for their life. They cry out for Jesus' help. And Jesus stands up and quiets the storm with his own words. And immediately the storm subsides, the wind stops, and they marvel, who is this man? No sooner have they arrived on the other side than they are encountered with a man filled with demons. This is one of the most intriguing, uh, provocative maybe, um, great story to tell at night. In fact, when, when we go to Israel, we go to this spot in nighttime and we have a bonfire and we tell this story. It's creepy, but it's fun, all right? And so I'm going to tell it to you in the daytime, all right? But uh, so let's just jump into the story now. Mark chapter 5, beginning of verse 1, this is the word of God. They came to the other side of the sea to the region of the Gerasenes. As soon as he got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. He lived in the tombs and no one was able to restrain him anymore, not even with a chain, because he often had been bound with shackles and chains, but had tore the chains apart and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. You know, this is an important story. It's found in all the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Every one of them give an account of this story. Mark uh, adds the fact that there were two men, even though there's one predominantly that Jesus has the dialogue with, um, but this is a very important story. What I want you to notice in verse 2, it says that this man had an unclean spirit. What does that mean, an unclean spirit? This is a, uh, another term used for someone that has a, a demon or a fallen angel, an evil spirit. The, 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 the spirits that the people from Bangalore were so afraid of, that's what this man was filled with, an unclean a spirit. And this spirit was destroying his life. Just... Just these few verses describe a hellish kind of experience. This man was unrestrainable, right? They couldn't hold him down. They tried to restrain him with ropes. They tried to restrain him with chains and with shackles just so he wouldn't drive people crazy or hurt himself. And he would just had this supernatural strength. He could break the chains and, and run. He was unrestrainable. He was uncontrollable. No one could subdue him, Mark says. He was not able, no one was strong enough or able to control him or subdue him. At Luke, in verse 8, verse 27, Luke adds that he was naked, that he had no, had no clothing. So uh, this could indicate some type of sexual perversion or it could just indicate kind of an animalistic kind of existence. 
that, that he had no shame, he had no awareness of himself. He lived like a wild, crazed animal in the outdoors, in the landscapes, in the mountains. He was also violent. Matthew chapter 8, verse 28 adds that he was so violent that people were afraid to travel, that they wouldn't travel in the region because they were afraid they would run up on this crazed man. And so he was terrorizing the place. He was completely out of control. He, the, the demons were wrecking his life. This was a terrible existence. But on top of all that, he was very, very tortured. He was in, in very much uh, every sense a tortured soul. Now look at it. It says that he cried out at night. Can you imagine in the dark hearing um, someone crying out, mumbling, talking to himself, cutting himself with stones and with metal, sleepless, hopeless, uh, helpless, wandering, never at peace, never calm, constantly tormented in his mind, constantly tormented in his soul. It was a living hell. And he lived among the, the tombs. The tombs were really, it's not like a graveyard like you'd think of today. Uh, the tombs were usually either carved out intentionally out of stone on the side of a mountain, or they would use just natural caves that were there, and they would put bodies in there and seal them off. So he was living among the caves. He was living among the, the tombs. He was living outside of society, outside of community. He was completely in bondage. There was no way that he could save himself or change himself. This is the person that Jesus saw. Now remember, they land probably at night and this man encounters them. He was living in darkness, physical darkness, but also spiritual darkness. And look at what happens in verse 6. It says, and when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt down before him. Uh, Luke's gospel adds, he cried out. Now, how did this man know it was Jesus? I mean, it's dark, right? These guys are coming over. Maybe he didn't. Maybe he's just crazed and he sees some visitors that obviously aren't from this part of town and decided to run up to them and somehow he recognizes Jesus. I don't really think it was him that recognized Jesus. I think it was the demons that recognized Jesus and they shrieked when they saw him. They shrieked when they saw the king of kings and they came face to face with Jesus. You know, this is really interesting that there is no account of demon possession like this in the Old Testament. There, there certainly is the awareness of demonic or evil activity in the Old Testament. For example, uh, we know that idolatry and the sacrifice of children and so on that were so dark and terrible in the Old Testament was demonic influenced. Uh, we do know that Job uh, was uh, harassed by a demonic influence as a godly man. We know that King Saul uh, would have an evil spirit come upon him. So we have some occasions of that, but we never see any kind of expression like demon possession as we see it here in the Old Testament. It's not until Jesus shows up that all of a sudden you see a lot of it. When you get to the New Testament, you see multiple occasions of people that are demon-possessed. And that's led a lot of scholars to wonder, why is that? Why, why is it not as overt in the Old Testament, but then clearly evident and seem to be propagating in the New Testament? We don't really have a clear answer. I believe it's because the Messiah has shown up. 
And when Jesus showed up, there was a shifting in the spiritual world. There was a, I mean, the, the message had gone out on the demon network, right? Man, the Messiah is here. And so there is, there is this flurry of demonic activity that's taking place uh, in the time of the Messiah when Christ has come. And, and when you notice when this guy comes face to face with Jesus, it says he bowed down. The Greek word there is uh, uh, proskuneo, which means to fall on your face or to fall on the ground on your face or to kiss the ground. It, it can also be a posture of worship. More to that in just a moment. But look, look at verse 7. It says, and he cried out with a loud voice, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you before God, don't torment me. For he had told him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Uh, what is your name? He asked him. My name is Legion. He answered, because we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the region. You know, when you see this encounter with Jesus in the demonic, there are a lot of questions that come up. So I want to just try to tackle a couple of these questions for us. The first question is this, is there demonic activity like this today? And of course, I believe that the answer is clearly yes. Yes, there is. Uh, not just overseas, though it's more overt there, but I believe right among us even now. Satan uh, was created as an angel to bring glory to God that rebelled against God and in a cosmic battle was thrown out of heaven uh, to the earth. Along with him, all of his followers, his other angels, now fallen angels that we call demons. Jesus spoke about this in Luke 10 verse 18. He said, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. That's how his fall began. Now, if you fast forward to the end, we find that when Christ comes again in his glory, that Satan is, and his demons are going to be thrown into a pit. It's called the abusan or the ab, uh, uh, abyss, right? The, basically, abusan uh, simply means a, a pit without a bottom, a bottomless pit. And so they know that when Christ comes, they're going to be thrown into the abyss for a, a period of time and then later, finally and fully thrown into a lake of fire. That is their future. That is where they're headed. And they know it. In fact, it's interesting that you see that because when Jesus is confronted with this man filled with demons, they say, what do you have to do with me? In other words, as if to say, why are you here? Are you here early? Did you come to take us to this place already? In fact, in Matthew, they say this, why have you come to torture us before the appointed time? In other words, they know that when Christ comes in his glory, he, they're going to be thrown into the pit. In fact, in Luke chapter 8, they said, they, they begged him not to banish them to the abyss. In other words, they know, they're like, okay, Jesus, are you here early? Are you going to throw us in there early? I, I thought it wasn't quite time yet. And yet they know exactly where they're headed and they know exactly who he is. That he's a son of the most high God. They're, they're, demons may propagate liberalism, 
but they are not liberal in their theology. They are very orthodox. They know exactly who Christ is. They know exactly what salvation means. They know exactly who they are and where they're headed. And aren't you glad for that? Man, we don't need to be intimidated at all. We serve the King of Kings and they are scared to death of him. And rightly so. So are they, is there evil around us? Yeah, absolutely. Another question, uh, can believers be demonized or possessed by a demon? This is uh, a, a very pre- uh, prevalent notion and, and taught in many cases. Uh, I believe the answer is clearly no. Uh, There is no indication anywhere in the scripture of a believer possessed by a demon. By the way, this whole idea of differentiating between someone being demonized and possessed by a demon, those are all the same thing. There is no distinction between those. And and I want you to notice in John chapter, uh, 1 John chapter 4 verse 4 says this, But you belong to God, my dear children. You have already won a victory over these people because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. Do you get that? He said, you are God's children. You belong to the Lord. The spirit of God, the Holy Spirit lives within you. And that Holy Spirit is much greater, much more powerful than the evil spirits that live in this world. When a person comes to Christ, Peter says that they're called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Uh, John says that when you come to Christ, you are born again, John 3, 3. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And in multiple occasions, in 1 Corinthians 3, 16, Romans 8, 9, it says that the Holy Spirit comes to live within you at the moment you give your life to Christ. Now listen, if the Holy Spirit lives within you, he's not going to have a demon for a roommate, all right? Now you may have thought when you were in college, you had a demon for a roommate, but the Holy Spirit's not going to have a demon for a roommate. That's a good spot for an amen. A better one than that. There you go, there you go. Question number three, is it possible for Christians then to be harassed by demons? Not demon possessed, but harassed or troubled by demons. And I believe the answer is yes. Christians are harassed by demons in lots of different ways. Let me just give you a couple of them very quickly. One is by temptation. That's probably the number one way that Christians are harassed by demons is through demonic temptation. No temptation sees you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are, he provides a way out so that you can stand up under it. So we know that we're tempted. Jesus himself was tempted in, in Luke chapter 4. So temptation is one. Uh, another way that uh, believers are harassed by the demonic is by false teaching. When, when people stand behind pulpits and they teach in seminaries, but they teach a different gospel, they teach a liberal gospel or they teach a foreign gospel. Those are actually, 1 Timothy 4.1 calls those doctrines of demons. They're literally demonic in their origin, in their thought, to veer people away from the truth. Another way is by persecution. The Apostle Paul and so many other Christians are persecuted, were persecuted, and that is demonically influenced and instigated. And still today, we have Christians all over the world that are persecuted, many of them losing their lives, many of them losing their homes and their businesses and their families. Many right now, as we're seeing in this church, are in labor camps 
because of their devotion to Jesus Christ. That is evil and demonic. Another way is just when, when the devil gets a foothold in a believer's life. I get this out of Ephesians chapter 4. He says, don't give the devil a foothold. That means it could be um, uh, habitual anger or habitual resentment or lying, which is the devil's tongue, the scripture says. Or it could be uh, self-destructive thoughts. All, all these types of things are demonically influenced that can harass believers. Listen, the Christian life is a battle. That's why we sing those songs about this, how I fight my battles. And, you know, the Christian life is a battle. And you're fighting it. And if there's a battle, that means we have an enemy. And if the enemy is real, then the battle is real. And the struggle is real. And you're dealing with it day by day. That's why Ephesians 6 says we got to put on the armor of God so that we can do what? We can take our stand and resist. That's what James chapter 4 verse 7 says. Submit yourself then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The way we resist is we hold on to God's truth. The way we resist is we cry out to Christ for help. The way we resist is that we, 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 uh, we take our stand on what is true and right and we live according to the gospel. This is how we fight those battles. We submit ourselves fully to God, resist the devil knowing that he will flee because of the power of Jesus Christ. So this whole story is wrapped around the demonic, right? So let's get back to the story. Look at verse 11. Then a large herd of pigs were there feeding on the hillside. The demons begged him, send us to the pigs so we may enter them. So he gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, the herd of about 2,000. That's a lot of pork chops, right? 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned there. The men who tended them ran off and reported it in the town and the countryside. The people went to see what had happened and they came to Jesus and saw the man who had been demon possessed sitting there dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen him described to them what had happened to the demon possessed man and told about the pigs and they began to beg him to leave their region. The key verse here is verse 15, right? That this man who was crazed, who was out of his mind, who was tormented by these demons are, is now sitting there at peace. He's got clothes on. He's having a rational conversation. He's at peace. Think about that. For maybe the first time that he can remember, he's not tormented He's at peace, he's at shalom. He's right with God and right with himself. He's at peace. Listen, only Jesus could do that. Nobody else could help him. Only Jesus could do that and only Jesus can do it today. Only Jesus can free you from the things that torment you. Listen, some of you may feel like, you know, I. I just feel in bondage. I, I, feel like I'm, uh, I feel like I'm in bondage to some darkness in my life. Maybe it's through a past, pain of the past, something that's happened to you, something that, that was inflicted on you even as a child and you've just not been able to ever recover from that or to move forward from that. Maybe it's habitual 
behavior or patterns of behavior or patterns of thinking that you can't seem to break that keep coming back and keep coming back and keep coming back and seem to control your life as if you don't have any control over what you do or what you say. Maybe it's, um, it's just temptations that are so pervasive that they keep returning and you can't break free from them. Only Jesus can set you free. Only Jesus can give you freedom to be at peace and in your right mind. Now you might say, well, why is it only Jesus? I mean, why, why only him? And I want to address that very important. I'm going to daisy chain a couple of thoughts here, but they're very important in the next five minutes. Can you hang with me? Because this is important to say, why only Jesus? The first reason why only Jesus can do this, can free you, is because that's what he came to do. In, in, uh, in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes right at the beginning of his ministry. He goes to his hometown. He goes to his synagogue. He, he draws out the book of Isaiah, the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads these words. He said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me, get this, to proclaim release of the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed. See that? Uh, To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then after he reads these words, this messianic prophecy that this is what the Messiah will do. He will set people free. He will release those who are in captive. Then he says, this prophecy has now been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm him, him. I am the Messiah. And this is what I came to do. And if you just do a cursory study of the ministry of Jesus, you find him doing exactly that. Healing the blind, healing the lame, casting out demons. Why? Because he was fulfilling his messianic role as the one who breaks bonds, the one who sets captive free. That is what the Messiah came to do. In fact, I love 1 John 3, 8. It says this, the Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. I love that. Christ came to destroy the devil's works, to break you free from the things that Satan would use to hold you back. That's why he came. You say, all right, well, if that's what he came to do, then how exactly does he do that? That's really important that we know that. So let me take you to another passage. 2 Corinthians 3, 17. We're getting lots of Bible today, amen? 2 Corinthians 3, 17. Listen, for now, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We'd love to stop right there, but we don't need to stop there. We need to keep reading. The Spirit of the Lord brings freedom. We all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, for this is from the Lord who is the Spirit. And that is what he's saying is that the Spirit of God is the one that brings freedom. The Spirit of God brings release from the things that hold you back. And it happens when we see who Christ is, when we see his glory, and in believing in him and trusting in him, we are transformed. That word transformed there is metamorpho. It's the only place in the Bible that it appears right here. And it literally is the word metamorphosis, all right? If you can think of a caterpillar changing into a butterfly, completely different, right? One's a slimy little creepy thing with a lot of legs. Another one, this beautiful thing that flies. 
the transformation, that's what Christ does through his Holy Spirit. When you come to him by faith, he begins to change you on the inside. Listen, this is very important. The Christian life is not about self-improvement. It's not like, well, Jesus is going to help me kind of break, get clean from my addiction. Jesus is going to help me kind of, you know, with my anger problem, my anger management. Jesus is going to help me be a better person. No, no, no. This is not about Jesus helping you do anything. It is about total transformation. That the Spirit of God comes in and does something that no one else can do. That's exactly what happened with this man and exactly what happens today. When a person comes to faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit begins to transform that person from the inside out. Well, how does that begin? Well, let me give you one more verse, and this is in Romans chapter 8. Check this out. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free. Get that? has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, that is trying to be religious, trying to obey, trying to uh, do it on your own, what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. See, ultimately, the, the bondage that we face is tied to our own sin. Sin is the big bondage that we have. Sin is the core problem that we have. The, the issues we have in our country are all directed straight down to sin that is in us and sin that is in the world. And only Christ can break that. Only Christ can release that. He set us free by sending his own son, Jesus Christ, to come as, a, sin, uh, come as a, a human being and to take on our sin and in so doing to become a sin offering for us. See, Christ came to live the life that we could not live and he came to die the death that we should have died. And on the cross, this holy son of God took on all of our sin, all your sin, all of my sin, all the things that hold us down, the things that Satan uses to hold us in bondage, and he died in your place. He was buried in your tomb, and three days later, he came back from the dead. Amen? And when he came back from the dead, he conquered sin, and he conquered the grave, and he smashed Satan's head. And now he offers freedom. Freedom to anyone who will come to him in faith. And that's exactly what happened to this man. This man came and he fell down on his knees before the only one that could save him. The Messiah who was prophesied to come. The one who could by his spirit free him. The one that could deal and would ultimately deal with the sin. That is only Jesus, folks. Only Jesus has that kind of resume. Only Jesus has that kind of power. Only Jesus can free you. Only Christ. Now listen, let's just look at verse 18. Story's almost over, but we want to miss this last little bit. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged him earnestly that he might remain with him. And Jesus did not let him, but told him, go home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And so he went out 
and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, the ten cities, that whole Gentile region, how much Jesus had done for him, and they were all amazed. I bet they were. He goes, Jesus, I just want to hang out with you. I want to be one of your disciples. I just want to, wherever you are, this is where I want to be. I mean, I can't believe what you've done for me. And he's like, no, you're not going to go with me. I want you to go back to your people, and I want you to tell them your story. This man was the first missionary. First missionary was a demon-possessed man that was changed. He went back to the Decapolis. In fact, uh, today you can go to the ruins of many of these cities, these Gentile cities. I can just imagine this man telling his story in all these different places. Sometime later, Jesus will return to this area and 4,000 people he will feed. Probably upwards of 20,000 people will be there. Where did all these people come from? They came because they heard a story of a man who was in bondage and they heard about Jesus that changed him. Listen, when you are changed, people see it. And people want to know, man, how do I experience that? Would you bow your heads with me for just a minute? I know our time is gone, but I just want you to understand that only Jesus can really change you. Not religion not trying to be good, not discipline, Christ. And this man's life changed when he finally knelt before Jesus and surrendered himself to Jesus. And my friend, your life changes when you do the same thing. When you come to the place where you say, Lord, I, I, I can't change myself. I can't change this problem. I can't change my past. I can't Obviously, my life is not being transformed. Jesus, I need you. The moment you get on your knees, the moment you cry out to him for help, he will meet you there. He will change you. You know why? Because he loves you. Because he wants to free you. That's what he came for. And so maybe today, right here in this moment, you've never given your life to Christ. I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now, to experience the change that only Jesus can bring. If you've never given your life to Christ, you've been holding off, you've been waiting, maybe you think you did, but you know there's been no change, and now the Holy Spirit is saying, that's you, that's you, that's you, then this is your moment, this is your time to ask Jesus to come in and change you. So I want to ask you, just with your heads bowed, if you're here today and you say, I need Christ in my life, I just want you to lift up your hand so I can pray for you. I'm not going to call you out in any way, but it just lets me know that God's working in your heart, and I'll pray for you. So lift up your hand right now. Pastor, pray for me. I just need Christ in my life. Pastor, pray for me. I need to be right with God. Maybe you're online. You say, Pastor, just pray for me. Just even right where you are, God sees you. And he will touch you, and he will reach you. All right, anybody else? Okay, all right, put your hand down. Just pray this prayer with me. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm in bondage, that I can't be free in and of myself. But I know that you love me. I know that you died on the cross for me. I know you rose again from the dead. 
And only you, Jesus, can change me. So I'm asking you now, please have mercy on me. Please forgive me. Please free me from my sin. Jesus, I choose right now to follow you. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Use me for your purpose. I pray this in Jesus' name.